it's a real photo or a fake photo. Here we go. Real or fake, driving there next to a boat. What do you think? Got a 50-50 chance on this one. It's real? You are absolutely right. It is a real situation, a car that actually is a boat. Real or fake? Is there such a critter like this? Real? Real, real, real? It is actually very real. Absolutely. Wake, wake up and see that in the morning, huh? Real or fake? Swimming with his tiger. Oh, come on. 50-50. Here you go. You can, you can only be half right or half wrong. What do you think? That one is fake. You are good. How are you doing so far? Got them all right? Here we go. Real or fake? Real or fake? And you, if it's real, you've got to brush it out. It's fake. Is that what you think? Actually, it is real. Yeah, yeah. Here we go. Real or fake? Fake? It is real. They have set that bookstore up in a little bit different. Real or fake? Tree line that's consistent that way. It is real. It's a chemical, chemical accident in Hungary that ended up doing that to the entire woods, turning them that whole section that way. Real or fake? Beautiful owl. Ooh, ooh, yeah. That one is fake. That's not imaginary. Real or fake? Kissing the uh, moose. That is fake. That's a photoshopped one. And real or fake? Is there such a thing, some guy that looks that Actually, not a guy. That is absolutely real. Yeah, how would you like that? Served on a platter, looking at you. Here, the reason I started off with that is I want to ask you questions. Is Daniel a book that's real or fake? Of all the different books in the Bible, Daniel is one of those that is most frequently attacked. Often attacked, and it's got a lot of material in it. It's got the idea of, you know, if, if somebody's interested in, in battle and war and those types of things, Daniel's got that in there. It's got some intrigue that's happening when cities are fallen that are unconquerable. It's got visions and dreams that are taking place about the future. We're going to get into it, talking about the future different world empires that he gives a, a timeline to. It's got angels coming and speaking with the individuals. It's got miracles happening like the men who are in the fiery furnace and they don't get burned. They don't even come out smelling like smoke. But the people who put them in, they were killed by the flame and the fire that was so strong. Daniel in the lion's den that most everybody knows. And even the point that the world's, at that time, the world's uh, most powerful ruler loses his mind and sanity for several years, just as predicted. So this story has got intrigue, it's got mystery, it's got miracles, it's got everything in it. And yet, it is one, as I said, one of the most criticized books. There's a whole school of thought that's called higher criticism. And what it is, is it approaches the Bible, and uh, you can go to school, get degrees in these types of things, and it approaches the Bible with an expectation of a let's examine to see if the books of the Bible are real. Most of the idea of those who are into that is let's prove where it's not real. They come with a presupposition that the Bible's not true. And so in this idea of this, this uh, modern higher criticism, Daniel gets attacked a lot, and it was really attacked here in the last century and before. All the way back in the early Christian era, 
there are, this writer was not a Christian writer, but he wrote many different volumes against different, uh, different viewpoints. He was a pagan apologist, and so he attacked, modern, uh, attacked Christianity in that era that it was coming up. But he dedicated one volume just to Daniel. Daniel was a popular book. It told about different events. Some of them understood that. He was even talking about Rome at the time that Rome was there. And so what happens is he started off one of the earliest critics of Daniel, and it continued on. In the 1900s, with the rise of liberalism throughout the United States and Europe, what happened is there was individuals who were critical and criticizing, and uh, Yale University, which was started to become a seminary early, early on in American history, just like Harvard, they were started to be seminaries that were supposed to promote conservatism. They kind of shifted over a period of time. Now they've shifted a whole lot. And so there was a gentleman that was teaching there, and he was in, employed through Harvard. You see his name, you see his book. He did from a historical point of view, he approached the book of Daniel because he was uh, an expert in history and archaeology, and he did research. His intent was to prove that Daniel was wrong. And so what happened is this gentleman, who was part of the staff for a period of time, he did his research, he went and explored, and he came to the conclusion that the book of Daniel was historically accurate. Even one of the most criticized aspects of Daniel, naming the different kings and who was in charge, and we'll see this in a few moments about some of the some of the criticisms that were leveled against Daniel from a historical point of view. Well, he came to a conclusion that it's just absolutely true that Daniel's, uh, that archaeological evidence supports the different areas, especially this one argument of Nab- uh, Nabonidus and uh, Belshazzar, if they were related, and how one could be called the king when he wasn't the king, and how that worked, and we'll give you an answer in just a moment. But he came to the conclusion the book of Daniel was real. He was so criticized by his colleagues He was so attacked for coming to that conclusion that within three years he committed suicide. So this area of of criticism, people are very, very vehement. They are very sincere. As sincere as you are to argue for the Bible, there are individuals who are just as sincere to argue against the Bible, okay, to get their point across. And so this individual went through it. Um, unfortunately, you know, Yale doesn't support the conservative point of view that the Bible is inspired. Um, most of the schools in America don't support that view at all. And so Daniel has been the object of attack. Now, we want to spot, stop and just say, before we get into the text, let's just ask ourselves, how do we know And how do we answer the people, if you pick up any kind of commentary, you're going to do anything online, you're going to have to run into this. How do you know that Daniel is really inspired? Well, you're going to accept it by faith. We understand that point. But what about some of the arguments that are made against it? And one of the major arguments is that Daniel is filled with historical inaccuracies. Now, let me point out that in the recent hundred years, more archaeological evidence has been found and come to the surface, which has taken away most of these arguments, as we'll point out in a moment. So you're going to still run into some authors that are saying the same old, but it's been proven that their argument is wrong, as we'll share in a few moments. There are a number of people who say Daniel is, uh, is well, let's throw it out. Who wrote the book of Daniel? Daniel. It says it multiple times. I, Daniel, and he claims. Now, here's what happens. As you go through the book, there are some who say that uh, the book couldn't have been written by the same person all the way through. And so Daniel is claiming to be the author, but obviously we can prove to you, they say, that Daniel didn't write the whole book. Therefore, that means that somebody's lying in the book. 
somebody's claiming to be Daniel. That's your biggest argument against the book of Daniel's accuracy, uh, is that there's more than one author and it wasn't Daniel and as a result. And they go to an argument that says Daniel gives so much detail, especially in chapter 11. He gives so much detail, uh, chapter 7 and 11 combined, about an individual in history. Now, the individual in future history that is being described is Antichrist. He's still future to us. But in the, in the closer to the era of Daniel, there is a historical character that is described in the book of Daniel as coming out of the Greek world, and he is going to perform what's called the abomination of desolation, and uh, it identifies this individual as an authority out of the Greek world. Well, there was an individual in history who did just that. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes, okay? And he lived right around 165 B.C. And so the claim is Daniel is so specific, and it is such a hand-in-glove uh, description of Antiochus Epiphanes that Daniel or whoever wrote it had to be a contemporary writing around 165 or thereafter had to be writing not prophecy but rather history looking back instead of looking future and so they've come to the conclusion if that's the case is there other evidences in some of those sections of the book are there other evidences that would indicate that it's a late writer not a writer from Daniel's era, but somebody who lived 165 or B.C. or beyond that time, closer to our history. And they make several arguments that I want to mention because these are important things that you run into. Daniel lived, here's his time frame, he lived right around 615 to 535. That's a guesstimate about his dates. It could be a little bit more. Uh, Daniel lived to a ripe old age. And so in that time period, he experienced a lot of different history, as we'll say. But some say this, is, this isn't possible, okay, that Daniel wrote the entire book. Because he couldn't have given all those details about Antiochus Epiphanes or the Greek Empire. He couldn't have been that specific unless he had lived after Alexander the Great, unless he lived after Antiochus Epiphanes, unless he lived after the Medo-Persian Empire. And so they uh, look, as I said, for other things in the book. And here are some of the arguments they give. If you look at chapter 1, verse 21, there's a phrase that comes up that Dad, Daniel, writing it, makes this comment that Daniel continued even under the first year of the king of Cyrus. And uh, so, uh, King Cyrus, not king of Cyrus. And so their comment is, Daniel projected that he, was di he died in this year from this statement. And uh, therefore, obviously, the book goes beyond that. In fact, in chapter 10, it talks about beyond that first year of Cyrus. And our argument is, wait a minute. He didn't say that he died in the first year of Cyrus. That's not what verse 121 says. It just says he continued up to that point. And so at that point that he's writing, and we know later on that it says that, in fact, he lived into the third year. So when he's writing at one point, could you have written a document that said, I am living up to, um, let's take an experience. I lived up to 9-11, and I saw you know, the TV reports, and I knew what happened. That doesn't mean you died then, but you're living up to that event. But if you're trying to find fault, it's easy what you can do. Some would say this, that Daniel is different than most Old Testament books. That Daniel doesn't use the personal name Yahweh, I am Jehovah, okay? that he uses Elohim, 
more, and he does. He uses a lot of Elohim. And so they say, therefore, that indicates that Daniel had, most of the book had to be written later. Because Daniel lived in a time period where they would use Yahweh, but then after, and I'm going to throw some terms out if you're not familiar, hang on, we'll mention it. But after the exile, during the exile when they're out, that's when the Jews really got more and more, um, what word do I want to use? Um, uh, They got really OCD over Yahweh. That they, you know, that they—that's when a lot of the customs of even more so with the Masoretes, uh, Masoretic texts, and others, as they were copying, that they really got to the point where they would never even mention the name, that they wouldn't speak his name, and so they say Daniel doesn't at this portions of Daniel he doesn't use much of Yahweh, and that tendency was more late exile than pre-exile in, in the history. That came several hundred years later that they wouldn't use Yahweh hardly ever at all in conversation. And yet, if you go to the book of like chapter 9, okay, he uses Yahweh seven times. Well, he doesn't use it all the way through the book, but he uses it more so than some of the other prophets use it. And then you have this. They say that there's a lot of theology. It mentions angels. It mentions the resurrection. And that is really a trend in, biblic- in extra-biblical literature in the late era, closer to the time of Christ, during the exile. And uh, so, therefore, he must have been writing late. However, there are other books in the Bible... Uh, you have Moses writing in the Pentateuch. He talks about resurrection. There's a, the oldest book in the Bible. Talks about angels and the resurrection. Do you know which book it is? Job. Job talks about it. So it makes no sense. But if you want to try to make an argument, you, you stretch. And so they're stretching with this. Here's one of the arguments they make. They say that in the book of Daniel, he uses terms for musical instruments that are more of a Greek terminology than they are where he was living in Babylon and Persia. And so, therefore, it must indicate somebody that lived really long time afterwards when the Greek empire spread through, uh, through the world under Hellenization and after Alexander the Great. Therefore, that must indicate, because three times he uses, uh, he uses words for, symbol, uh, for, for musical instruments that are Greek terminology for those instruments. All that proves is that, and it's true, there's other writings that are beyond the Bible where they use the terminology for Greek instruments and they use the Greek, the Greek terms. And there was a spread of, of Greek influence, even though it really came under Alexander the Great. They were a trading empire. They were, they were selling things throughout the whole Aryan region. And so to say, make this argument is to say, well, there was no Greece. There was a Greece a long time before this. They were trading. They were selling instruments. So it's not unusual. Here's what they say. Is that in some of those extra, extra biblical literature that's between the Old Testament and New Testament, apocryphal, apocryphal type books, there's one that's called Ecclesiasticus. It's written by Jesus Syrac. And in that, he lists off a whole bunch of Old Testament heroes. Daniel is not listed. And this was written closer to the New Testament era. So uh, Daniel's not there. It must mean that there really wasn't a character called Daniel until his story shows up later on. Well, 
It's, it's an interesting argument. He doesn't mention Ezra. He doesn't mention uh, any of the judges but Samuel, but we don't question whether they're, they're real or not. There's an argument that comes up this way. Daniel is, and if you go back in the original language, Daniel was, what records we have, was written in two languages, Hebrew and Aramaic. And so with that Hebrew and Aramaic that, was, that it was written in, different sections are written in different language. Therefore, it has to be two authors because he used two languages. Without going any further, do you know any people who use two languages but they're the same person? That sometimes they might write in one language but then another? What might be the case why somebody might speak or write in one language and then another time use another language? The audience or who you're talking about, not just to or about. And so we, there's this, this whole argument, but it's, it's purposeful. It's to deny or discredit. Here's one of those that you find frequently. Nebuchadnezzar is mentioned in the book, and Belshazzar are mentioned in the book. They are both kings of Babylon that are involved as emperors at times. And in the book of Daniel, it is said that Belshazzar is the son of, or called, the son of Nebuchadnezzar several times. But we know historically that they weren't father and son. There was a gap between them. Therefore, this must mean that there's errors in Daniel because Daniel says that Belshazzar is the son of Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, there's several possibilities here. Do, did they at times call an individual the son of, but it was generations in between? Yeah, that's not unusual. In fact... We know from other writings that are in that region, we know that any time there's a successor, if we were writing the way they wrote, we would say today that Donald Trump is the son of Barack Obama. That would be the way that they wrote, and that was, very, that was normal that they would write that way. And you and I would say, no, 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 we don't want to write that way because that's not, but they did in that time. So it isn't a, a, a contradiction. It isn't a mistake. There are records that have been proven that that used to be a major argument that it's not the case. Belshazzar is presented as the last ruler, though his father, Neb Nabonidus, we know from other records, was the king at the time. But in Daniel, it's saying that Belshazzar is the one that sees the mene, mene, tekelufarsen, the writing on the wall. And it claims that he is the last king. So therefore, critics come along and say, Daniel is filled with more error, more mistakes. Because we know that Nabonidus was the last ruler. Belshazzar was his son. Well, that's not a real problem. Because we also know by records that when Nabonidus went out to war, what do you think he did with his son? What would you do? Put him in charge. And guess what people called him? The king. And so we have extra-biblical writings that supports this very clearly, that at the time that, that the city falls, Nabonidus has his army away from the city, which prompted some of the attack. And as a result, when in the story where Daniel is writing and talking about it, he's talking about the ruler in the city at the time who was the last king in this dynasty, Belshazzar, who was appointed co-regent or uh, the king on the throne at that time during that battle when the city fell. So you have these arguments that come up. That, that, that you and I can answer if we just stop and say, wait a minute, let's just, let's just take an honest view of history and an honest view of the book and the way things that work without a presupposition. 
that says we got to find things that are wrong with it. And so some will say, well, the book was you know, obviously written. But we do have records of this. There are manuscripts that are found that indicate that the book of Daniel was in circulation and it was being copied already by 200. The entire book was being copied and circulated. So they had copies that were found that are 200 or earlier. Well, that takes care of that argument that he had to live later than 165. And so these arguments keep on going, keep on coming up, but they keep on being discredited. There are some who say, well, now, wait a minute. The book of Daniel is filled with supernatural events. Okay, it can't be prophecy, and yet Daniel is filled with fulfillment of prophecy. Let me let me see if I can give you an illustration of it. If you and I were to take our Bibles and go all the way back to Deuteronomy 28, when they are coming into the Promised Land, God told the Jews, "If you obey me, what will I do for you in your your land? I will keep you in the land. What about the rains? R a i n s. I will give you the early." And the later rains. In other words, I'll bless your crops. But if you do not keep on honoring me, what did he predict would happen? I would withhold the rains, and in time, what would he do with them as far as the land? He'd scatter them. He'd discipline them and take them out of the land. That was predicted when Moses was in his final ministry. The book of Daniel is a fulfillment of that prophecy. The book of Daniel talks about and refers back. And if we were, again, I give you all the information here that talks about how God said all the way back in Deuteronomy, I will bring Gentiles in. Gentile governments will come in and overthrow you. And so you have some of that happening in the book of Judges, but it really comes to fulfillment in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 1, where you find Daniel and his friends are taken captives. You read it, where we start in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem, besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand with part of the vessels of the house, which he carried to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, Nebuchadnezzar's God, and brought the vessels unto the treasure house of his God. And so what you have is a fulfillment of Deuteronomy 28, how God was carrying out. So the book starts with fulfillment of prophecy. Therefore, you and I to sit back and say, now, wait a minute, wait a minute, this book is giving predictions and prophecy. It kicks off saying, here's a fulfillment. Jeremiah was preaching at the time when Babylon was a, rule, was a ruling empire. He was in the northern region, um, or in the southern region of Israel, around Jerusalem, and he was preaching. Jeremiah is called the what prophet? Weeping prophet. Why? It's not real hard. Why is he called the weeping prophet? He cried a lot. He cried over what was going to happen to the, Jeru- to the Jews in Jerusalem. And he predicted... He kept on saying, if you, if you hadn't repented, God's going to use the Babylonians going to wipe you out. God's going to use the Babylonians and wipe you out. The Jews hated his message. They put him in prison. They put him in, in the cesspool. They treat him poorly. He gives up. He is so frustrated. He gives up, goes home, says, I'm not going to preach anymore. But then God just doesn't let go of his heart. He has to come back. He has to give the message to the king time and time again. And he's predicting the Babylonians are going to come. They're going to come and they're going to wipe us out and they're going to leave nothing of Jerusalem. The Jews are saying, are you kidding me? They're going to wipe out Jerusalem? God promised that Jerusalem would last forever. Okay? 
But God had predicted, if you don't follow me, I'll kick you out of the land for a period of time until you clean up your act, and then I will give you the land forever. So Jeremiah is giving these predictions. The book of Daniel fulfills it. The Babylonians come in and they wipe them out. So what you have in the book of Daniel is this idea of prophecy kicks off the book, fulfillment. So when Daniel starts speaking prophecy, it's no surprise. In fact, Jesus Christ makes comment that Daniel was absolutely right. And he comments when he does, when he makes the comment about when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel. And this is one of those passages that were the abomination of desolation spoken of Daniel. Uh, that's one of the passages that the, those who are against the book would say, well, Daniel didn't speak it. Well, there's the words of Jesus. Jesus says, who spoke about the abomination of desolation? Daniel. Therefore, we know it has to be right, or Jesus is... Yeah, yeah. Then, so it's the credibility of Jesus Christ. In the book of Daniel, okay, Daniel is speaking about a lot of prophecy that you and I can look back. Think right now. Think right now in the book of Daniel, from what you remember of it. Are there prophecies... There's some there about the Antichrist. We haven't seen that yet. There are some there about you know, the uh, covenant between Israel and Antichrist and the seven-year tribulation. We haven't seen that yet. But what prophecies given in Daniel have we already seen fulfilled? What's that? The wall was built. You're right. In Daniel chapter 9, that they would rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. Yeah. That's a very specific one. Okay? Any others? You don't remember anything out of the book of Daniel? 70 years. It's talked about that. At the end of the 70 years, you're going to get back into the land. And it was exactly at the end of the 70 years of the exile, they get back into the land in 536. Can you think of anything else that he predicted? He told the king, because of your pride, what's going to happen to the king? You're going to eat like an animal. And he gave him the time period. He told them the time period that you, this will happen for so many months. Guess what? If you read through the story, it happened just as Daniel predicted. Uh, Daniel predicted different things. He predicted the succession of empires, what those empires would be like, which we'll get into uh, next week and week following. He, uh, he said that Babylon would fall. He told them that night, he says, you're going to be overrun. Oh, we can't be overrun. We're the Titanic, the unsinkable city. And they were overrun. It was predicted in the book that Messiah would come. Okay? And he came. It was predicted that when Messiah would come, he would be, do you remember the phrase? He would be cut off. Literally, he would be slaughtered killed mercilessly. Did that happen to Messiah? He would be cut off for his people. Did Jesus die for his people? Yes. Okay, so all these predictions that are given in Daniel, we can look back and say, oh, check, check, check. Everything he said, yes, 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 yes. By the way, if the book starts off telling us about fulfillment of prophecy that was given by prophets hundreds of years before Daniel. And he's saying, see, what they said is true. And then the book starts listing off a whole bunch of prophecies as well. And we look at it and say, those are true. What does that give you an indication? What, what, what would be your conclusion? If all the prophecies that are, that are given up to a certain point are true, what would it say about the rest of the prophecies? 
They're going to be true as well. They're going to be true as well. So when people approach this book, and I know I'm boring you, and I know that you're going, well, let's get into the text. But you need to be prepared that if you take some of the things you're learning here and get into discussion, that it has become popularized. That Daniel is wrong. That argument about the son of the king, and they're still teaching that argument in some schools, though it's been proven a false argument. Okay. Why would they keep on teaching that? What's that? They don't have anything else. They're going to they're stick with the argument because they want to deny the supernatural nature of Daniel. If you, if you deny the supernaturalness of the Bible, what does that leave people? Yeah, well, take it away and you can basically do... Yeah, yeah. And so the supernaturalness of the Bible is basic. Oh, I forgot there was the destruction of Israel that was foretold at that point too. So you either reject it or you accept it. And so you have to make a choice. Do you accept the facts of prophecy being fulfilled and things like that? And it really comes down to the idea of did God supernaturally inspire this book? Did God get involved? Was this man's concoction or because of the predictions made hundreds of years before with such specific Thank you. Okay, I can't say it. Uh, if, if that is true, then it had to be by a God who was superintending the inspiration of the book. And you and I say we believe that. That evidence points to that, our, that conclusion. And so uh, we accept and say that God obviously is not only superintending the work, but he is also making things come to pass the way he predicted them. And so we worship with that in mind. We accept that in mind. Okay, so we're looking at the book of Daniel. And we're finding out things that are true in the book of Daniel as we start exploring it. But let's pause for a second. I said that Daniel was written in two languages. Okay? And, there are, and the two languages are... Okay, Aramaic and Hebrew. Okay, the two languages. Okay, and the sections of the book are split. It starts in Hebrew, and, uh, which was the common tongue of the Jews even in their exile. Okay, they did, the, they did the Hebrew. Aramaic is an is a expanded Semitic tongue. It's a tongue that was more well-known outside the Jewish society. The Jews could know it as well because it's a similarity between Hebrew and, and uh, Aramaic because they're both Semitic languages. And so there's, uh, there's a lot of similarities. But the Aramaic was more popular outside in, in that region. So it became more of the commercial tongue to the Hebrews as they were being spread throughout the region. And so the question comes up, okay, why would the author write in two languages? And it's interesting. If you divide the book and you say, okay, let's look at chapter 2 through chapter 7. Okay, what is his subject matter? We know he's writing in a broad base to the Jews who are going to take it and anybody else who is listening. Oh, oh and by the way, others would read this book besides the Jews. Uh, what was Daniel's job? What, what was he uh, trained to become? Okay, um, let me broaden this. We are all excited at Christmas time about three men who visit the Christ child, the wise men. Okay, if you study history, the wise men were those scholars, astronomers, astrologers, philosophers who were trained in the Middle East with a wide variety of topics. Daniel and his friends, more than likely, from what we understand historically, were some of the beginnings of the wise men. 
those who were trained in all different types of sciences, sciences and all manners of, and could know multiple languages, things like that. Babylon and the successive empires, they were really uh, strong in this idea of let's blend the knowledge from other cultures. And let's see if we can take people from other cultures and then use this to our benefit. And so Daniel and his friends, as Daniel is writing, it wouldn't just be the Jews who would read, but by virtue of where he's at and that whole design, who else would read his writings? It would be the other wise men. Okay? Which is no surprise because you've got to think this through. How did the wise men know they were following a star all the way to the birth of the Messiah? Okay, they were exposed to Scripture. They had some truth. They knew there was a Messiah coming. And so Daniel is writing, and with that in mind, he's writing not just to the Jews. Some sections of the book deal with not Jewishness and Jewish specific uh, uh, instances and, and items particularly, but rather he is more broad-based. So the more broad-based sections of the book, such as this, the vision of the Gentile world empires, the statue that Nebuchadnezzar builds that represents different empires, the, uh, the discussions going about the fall of Babylon that Daniel has with the Gentile rulers, uh, the writing on the wall in chapter 5, the fall of Babylon, the uh, dealing with Nebuchadnezzar, which is chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar and talking with him, and Nebuchadnezzar ends up writing a section about the greatness of God. He would write not in Hebrew, but in Aramaic. Okay? Uh, the decree, the idea of no prayer, and Daniel in the lion's den, that was all Gentile activity and intrigue and court happenings. And then the vision of the world empires once again. That's Gentile-focused. That's world-focused. So it's no surprise it would be in Aramaic. But when you go to the sections that are in Hebrew, it's interesting what they have the experiences of the Jewish captives, what they experience in their diet, the, uh, the persecution of the Jews under the Greeks, Antiochus Epiphanes, what's going to happen in the future to the Jews before the kingdom, that's chapter 9, Daniel and his interaction with heavenly beings, the uh, Jews and what happens to them under Antichrist, the resurrection and the kingdom. So in the division of the book, the nature of the topics, those that are really specifically dealing with Jewish experiences, are written in Hebrew. Those that are talking universal experiences or Gentile experiences are written in a Gentile-oriented tongue. So it's not that it's, it's different authors that are messing this up. It's a very specific design by God in saying, okay, I want to make sure that the Gentiles understand what happened and what's recorded. Because it really applies to them or incorporates them in some of the different story. So we get the book of Daniel just to lay out the scene. What has happened? Let's, do, let's go all the way back in history. The Jews come out of Egypt after they've been in slavery for how many years? 400 years, roughly 400 years. We're giving round figures. They come out, they have the exodus, they come with Joshua up to the edge of the promised land, and there's the wilderness wanderings in between here. And then they go into the promised land with Joshua, the waters open the Jordan, they cross, it's a second Red Sea experience, and they enter into the promised land and they start the invasion. 
And so Joshua breaks the backbone of all the Canaanites. He's got basically all that's left are scattered groups of Canaanites. The judges is the period that the Jews are supposed to go and clean up house. But they don't get rid of all the different small little segments of the Canaanites. In fact, they start living with and, and collaborating with them. And that's the book of Judges that God has gone basically spanking them for not doing what he told them to do. Then they come after the book of Judges. They come to the point where the Jews say, we need a king. We need to have a centralized government. Please give us a king. And their first king is Saul. Okay, He is not uh, the glory years of Israel. But after him, he's succeeded by David. And then David's succeeded by Solomon. These are the golden years of Israel, where Israel is expanding. In fact, they are the government of the Middle East. People are coming all the way from the regions of Africa, the Queen of Sheba, and all over, and they're paying homage to David, to Solomon, and the coffers are overflowing. Solomon, during his reign, he starts getting antsy and saying, I'm not going to follow the Lord God only. Let me experiment. And especially because of his political marriages, he brings a number of brides from other countries, and they start introducing to Solomon all kinds of different worship and bringing into Jerusalem. And so what happens is the Jews start drifting. They go into idolatry, and God starts working with them and dealing with them, chastising them. There's the division of the king of the empire. The Jews, they, they revolt against Solomon's son, Rehoboam, and they take Jeroboam leads a revolt, and they divide the land into two different kingdoms, the northern kingdom called Israel, the southern kingdom called Judah. And they coexist for a period of a few hundred years. God is still trying to get a hold of their hearts. Still trying to send prophets, Elijah, Elisha, trying to preach revival. They have flare-ups of revival, but it's not consistent. The Ahabs, then the Jezebels, they have more influence than Elijah does in the long run. And so what happens is the ten northern kingdoms, they finally get overcome. The Assyrians, whose capital city is Nineveh, whose capital city Nineveh was the object of which prophet going to preach to them? Jonah who didn't want to go there because they hated these people. The Assyrians are used by God to come in, and they attack the northern kingdom, they destroy it, they wipe it out, and, and that happens in 786. There is a remnant of from every tribe. There is a remnant of individuals who migrate to the south and try to remain loyal to the household of David. So when we talk about the ten lost tribes of Israel... Biblical history, they are not lost. They did not migrate to Great Britain. America is not the ten lost tribes of Israel. You know, that, that's a false narrative that is wishful thinking that we are, we are future Israel. That's not the case. But some, so some of the people are left and they, they are in the, uh, the two basic tribes are South Judah and Benjamin, but then there's been migrants that have come down. And they survive for a few more generations. But they start following into that same pattern as their northern cousins had done. And so God starts sending different Gentile armies against them, most from Babylon, who now has replaced Assyria. And so in 605, there's invasion number one. In invasion number one, the Babylonians do not destroy Jerusalem. They ransack the temple, and they take a lot of gold from the temple. But they also take a number of captives. They take kids from the noble families. And they take them basically as hostages 
Let's take them back to Babylon. We'll take your kids from the noble families and that will keep the nobility, the royalty in line because if they revolt against us again, what are we going to do with their kids? We're going to kill them. So we take the kids and we bring them back to Babylon and we're going to utilize these kids who have some nobility, some training and they, are, they should be you know, ed- educated because of their, their uh, youth there in Jerusalem. And so they, six or five, they made that. But the Jews back in Jerusalem, they revolt a second time or they revolt under the rule. And so a second time, a few years later, the Babylonians come again with an army and they invade. They overrun the capital. This time they take thousands of commoners. We're going to take them back to Babylon as captives, as hostages. So we're going to deplete the number of people that are living in Jerusalem and keep the, to keep the Jews in line. And so when that happens, by the way, in this second time, there's a group of people, including the prophet Ezekiel. This is when he gets hauled off with the people to Babylon. And they revolt again. The Jews in Jerusalem, they don't care. They revolt. And so the Babylonians come on this third invasion. They come and they've had enough. They wipe out Jerusalem. They, wipe, they kill off the peoples. The only ones who are left are some who are with Jeremiah. And they even take Jeremiah and they say, we're not going to stay here and submit. And they go to what land? Anybody remember this? They flee somewhere for safety. South. Begins with an E. Ends in a ch. Okay. Do you got it? They go down to Egypt. And they think the Egyptians, and, and Jeremiah told them, if we go to Egypt, we will all be killed. Don't trust in the Egyptians. God's going to spank us with the Babylonians. Just submit. Don't try to revolt against God any further. They hauled Jeremiah and all those people go to Egypt, and what happens to them in Egypt? He predicted they'd be killed. Okay. They were killed. Thank you. Okay. Uh, just like he predicted. Okay. And God's really dealing with them. And Jerusalem is absolute. There is no Jerusalem. There is no kingdom of the Jews. And it's going to lay fallow and dormant for how many years? 70 years. And the reason God chose 70 years is because they have not observed over the last hundreds of years, they have not observed the year of Jubilee for 70 times. And so God is getting their, his 70 years, he's getting it out of them in a succession of 70 years that they're going to be held out of the land. And that's when Daniel lives. Daniel lives from this time period, and he is living in Babylon during the, he, he actually he goes, um, he goes in the first invasion, and he lives in Babylon, and he is in the capital when Jerusalem is invaded again. He's in the capital when they're invaded again. So he's very concerned about his home country. He's like Nehemiah, living in a capital, and knows what's happening back home. And he's brokenhearted over it. And um, most of us conclude this, that Daniel has had probably some influence to help temper some of these attacks that maybe it was through his influence and his, his persuasion that they didn't get wiped out the, the second time, that the, the people were hauled away captives and not all of them destroyed, but many of them hauled away the third time into captivity. And uh, those who did not submit to captivity, they ended up going to Egypt and they were killed down there. We don't know 
but there's the, the strong possibility that basically Daniel was like a Joseph. He was helping, you know, like um, uh, the Queen Esther, helping to, to influence, to spare the people of Israel from total annihilation. But that's where he lives. So when we open up chapter 1, verse 1, this is the story we're starting. We're starting the story of Daniel, who is probably in his teenage years, he's being taken all the way from Jerusalem up into that area of Babylon, that yellow line that, just, uh, that we just had there. That that's where he's going. And when he gets there, he's a kid. Now, the passage opens up and it says that the king took the temple furnitures out. That the king, when he was invading, what he did is he grabbed and he said, okay, look at verse 1 and 2. He took uh, the, the gold out of the house of the temple and he put it in the house of his God. This is, this is something that's very important. And this lays, this first two verses lays the foundation for the book. Okay, this, catch this, because this is exactly the theme of the entire book of Daniel is Nebuchadnezzar, who believes he is on a scale of powerful leaders. Where does Nebuchadnezzar think he's at? He's number one. He's number one. Okay, Nebuchadnezzar believes he's number one. And if we went back in that map, we would say that, okay, let me go back there. He basically is at this point. In that region of the world, he's number one. <clears throat> they have conquered the Assyrians. They have spread. And they're, they're pretty, he's, he's the guy. In fact, when Daniel gives visions, what, who's the head of this statue? It's Nebuchadnezzar, and what's the material it's made out of? Gold. Okay, so he is probably one of the most premier ancient kings that have ever lived. And so Nebuchadnezzar is going to say, okay, I'm going to take the gold out of the temple of the Jews, and I'm going to take it back, and I'm going to put it in the temple of my god, whose name is Marduk. And he's going to take and put it back. You have to think... To get the sense of the book, you have to think like an Old Testament person would think at that point. At this point of history, who is the most powerful God in people's minds? Why do you say it depends where you live? Would, would, do you think the Jews were even convinced it's still Jehovah? They should be. They sh theoretically, they should be. Okay, if we go back and we think, okay, how did people view their gods? We have to understand something. And this, this impacts the story of Daniel, okay? He puts all the furniture because they're superstitious people. Most everybody was to a degree. That we conquered because of our God whose name is Marduk. He helped us to conquer. He helped us to, uh, to arrive. And by plunging, plundering different temples... We are showing the peoples who worshipped in the temple of Jerusalem, who worshipped in the temple of Egypt when they invaded Egypt. We're showing them that their gods were not powerful enough to protect them. Uh, let me see if I can put it this way. If this was our temple... And up here we had all of our gold. And this was our, our, we had a statue here of the, the deity that we're, we're uh, worshipping. To really show your power over our deity, if we were an ancient people, we, to really show disdain, you not just conquer the people, but you go into their very house, the very temple where they're supposed to be the strongest, and you take all of that God's stuff that was given to him. You are showing that you are more powerful, or actually your deity is more powerful than that deity. You're robbing his bedroom furniture. You're taking everything out of his fridge. 
And so it's a, in their mind, this was a real strong way of showing disdain. In the old world, the way that you would say, okay, who's the God that deserves to be worshipped? Well, do you got the biggest country? Is your country the biggest? Is your country experiencing prosperity? Are your coffers full? Who's got the biggest army? All of this combined says, we've got the biggest God. So the Babylonians come in and they beat the Jews. Not just once. Not just twice. How many times? Three times. And in their first invasion, they go into the temple of God and they take all the stuff out of the temple of God. They are kind of grinding their heels into the, into the backs of the Jews and saying, see, your God couldn't even protect his own house. Our God is more powerful. Now, the reason I say that is think through the book of Daniel now. In Daniel, in every occasion, what is God trying to portray? Daniel's food, for instance. When he says, I'm not going to eat the food that's dedicated to your God. I'm going to eat the food that my God says I can eat. What is he demonstrating? The power of Jehovah. Where? Not just his life, but I'm talking physically. In a, where, where is he located at this moment? He's in Babylon. This isn't God's territory, according to the, the world at that time. God's territory is Jerusalem. Jerusalem is still standing at this moment. But Daniel is demonstrating the power of God in Babylon, not only in Babylon, but in the palace, where they are worshiping Marduk. When, when you get to the story of Daniel and lion's den... We are once again the three men in the fiery furnace. What is being demonstrated? The power of God where? In Babylon, you know, in outside of his supposed territory, do you think this impacted Nebuchadnezzar? Absolutely, because what does he do in chapter 4? He says that God is the God of all the gods. Do you think the Jews in captivity needed to see this so that they would believe that God is still on the throne, that their God could even help them where? In Babylon. It, it's, it's, folk, you've got to read it from their sandals. You've got to put yourself in their spot. These events that are occurring in Daniel's personal life are not just for Daniel, but they're for everybody. They're for the Jews. They're for the Gentiles. They are to demonstrate that his God, even though he's been ransacked, even though his temple has been plundered, he is still the God who is in charge. And it's, the, the whole book is all about a, um, a fight for who's the most powerful, a philosophical, a mental fight over who is the most powerful God. It, aren't, we, aren't we glad we live in a land that's, that argument is gone? Or is it still a battle today? Is there still a war going on today over the supremacy of God? Yeah, yeah. That's why this book of Daniel is so important because it is demonstrating the power and the ability of God in a, in a way that people would not understand back then. They would have thought he was in his territory only and besides he got beat up. No, 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 no. The reason the Jews, the reason the Jews are in captivity is because God put them there. It's not that God lost. 
That's the theme of the book. God hasn't been beaten. God is actually, he's in control. He let them go into captivity. He brought about the captivity. Why? He's the proverbial loving father who does what with the child? He's spanking the child. He's spanking the child. This book is all about sovereignty and control. Something that's still in modern-day America. This book is really, really exciting when we get into it. Okay, I've got a lot of background information. I've bored you. Wake the person up. Let's get ready for worship, okay? In 15 minutes, we'll get the service underway. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being here.